Welcome to Shadows on the Sound, a podcast about the stories, superstitions, and mythologies that withstand the test of time. I'm your co-host, Kamala Thompson, analyst, author, and paranormal hobbyist. And I am your other co-host, Z.D. Gladstone, chef by day, creative writer by night, and um, psychology person, like, you know, all the time. So uh, this week, we honor Valentine's Day way after the fact. By discussing what is uh, most likely the biggest topic in fantastical fiction, true love. Love. True love. See, my brain went the same exact place. Forever. (laughs) This is is why we're friends. My brain went to the same place. Like, I'd like to take a poll out there of anybody whose brain didn't go there when they heard that because they frankly are totally missing out or way younger, which has been happening more and more at work. It's kind of horrifying. Anyway, <laughs> that is that is horrifying. <laughs> we hope you're still thinking about our last weekly geeky query, which was about the Disney gender swaps because I'm still thinking about it because I still think it's awesome. And I, I intend, I'm going to a party tonight. I intend to ask this question at the party of every single person there. And see if anybody gives me different answers, because, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Anyway, uh, so, Kamala, since I spoke to you an hour ago, what are you reading and what are you writing? Uh, uh, I am going to be jumping back into the book. A, I got to look it up because I never pronounced the title correctly. A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain is the name of the book. So I got about halfway through and then had to switch over to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies for our last podcast. Um, so I will be continuing that. In terms of writing, I am still editing book three, but I have a lot of ideas for book four. And at this point, I am thinking full steam ahead on the series so I can move on to something else. <laughs> How about you? Excellent. Um, oh, man. Well, my uh, a good friend of mine gave me a book called Euphoria, which is... <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, uh, which, from what I understand, has absolutely nothing supernatural or fantastical about it. It is rather a, um, a con- I guess it's not a contemporary drama because it takes place earlier in the 20th century. It's it's almost historical fiction, almost, but it's not quite far back enough. But it's kind yeah. of, it was on my recommendation, so that's why I'm jumping in. I'll stop now. <laughs> yeah, not just her recommendation. She gave me a copy for Christmas. So I, uh, I'm going to be taking that with me to the beach, and I plan on reading it there. I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm working on in terms of writing. Oh, man. So here's an interesting thing. I've been debating whether or not to take my laptop to the beach. No, because... I'm taking mine, man. <laughs> I'm not. Are you kidding me? I'm not getting sand on my beautiful... My beautiful laptop. That is not oh. happening. I'm not so, going to take it. I'm not going to take it on the beach. Yeah, well, I'm going to be in Hawaii on the beach. Like 90% of the time, I'm going to be on the beach. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to leave my laptop at home. And I'm oh. going to take a good old-fashioned notebook. And I'm going to do all my writing in the notebook. Um, I've done that before. It means that later then I have to type everything from the notebook onto my laptop. But I'm a very fast typist that way, so I'm not worried about it. You know that, so, oh, I might want to model after your behavior. So what I find interesting is I do most of my writing straight onto the laptop. However, when I get stuck or writer's block, it always helps me to handwrite it out because it actually uses a different part of your brain. So I'll be really interested to hear in our next recorded episode how that worked for you. I'll let you know. I will absolutely let you know. I can tell you from other experiences I've had, because I usually carry a a tiny little chapbook in my purse with me wherever I go. And so if I'm waiting in line or if I'm, you know, in a parking lot waiting for something, I will bust out a pen and sometimes write down ideas. I do the same thing. Dialogue, right? It's so much fun. Um, And one thing that I do on the laptop is... and. I don't even realize how often I do it until I am writing by hand. When I'm typing, I'll decide halfway through a sentence I want to change a word. Or I'll go on in the next sentence and then decide, no, I want to use this word in this sentence, so I can't use it in the sentence before. And so I'll go back and switch it. Just teeny tiny little tweaks that I don't even realize I'm doing 
until I'm writing by hand and I have to go back and cross stuff out all the time. So mm -hmm. when I'm writing by hand, I really have to force myself not to do that because if I do, it takes up too much paper and it takes up too much time. So I really have to force myself to just write it out and trust myself that I will do all the tiny little word tweaks when I type it out. Oh, I find the opposite. So really? I, yeah, for me, writing by hand, I accept that it's, it's a cognitive flow. I don't expect it to be cohesive or formed. Mm -hmm. For me, it's more just a flow of thoughts, and, which is why it helps me get past blocks. Writing on the computer, on the other hand, I really struggle with getting stuck in an editing loop, particularly in the beginning of the book. And usually I'll get about a third of the way through and then I'll have to be like, you know what? This is stupid. Just run full <laughs> speed ahead. And I still do it every single time. So I'm an idiot. But yeah, no, I, I kind of have the opposite problem. That's interesting. Mm. Go, yeah, go figure. So people. Yeah, unique. human beings where we're fascinating critters. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so getting on to our topic of love. Whoa. So, <laughs> so I mean, there was, there was a, a number of inspirations for this. I, I'm now sitting here and I can't remember when we were talking about this, which came first, whether it was the Disney gender swap question that came first or whether it was my idea of true love for this podcast and then the Disney one, because obviously the whole true love thing comes up in Disney a lot. Mm -hmm. But when I think about it, next to the, uh, next of course to the, the brilliant lines and scenes from The Princess Bride, uh, when I hear the phrase true love, the other audio, the other, the other earworm that I get is Ursula the Sea Witch. When she's telling Ariel about the, uh, bargain she's making with giving up her voice so that she can become human for a few days. And she says, you know, you have to get dear old Princey to fall in love with you, which is to say he has to kiss you, not just any kiss. The kiss of true love. And that's the other earworm I get. <laughs> so for, it's funny for me. Yes, all these Disney pieces jump into mind. However, more contemporary examples jump into my mind. So there's a term used by romance writers, and it's called, uh, it's actually an acronym, H-E-A, uh, Happily Ever After. And it is the tenement by which all romance books are written. If you submit a romance book to a publisher, it must end with a happily ever after, which kind of leads into true love. Mm -hmm. So it, it really makes me think of that. And I, we can get into my feelings on that later. So I'll stop now. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, obviously everyone has their own thoughts of, of what that means when they hear it. Um, I would also bet that any of our listeners, if they think about their own experience with that phrase, Probably your idea, yes, you, listener, probably your idea of what that phrase means has changed throughout your life. I know it has for me. I know oh, that God, my yeah. ideas of what it meant when I was eight years old was different from what it was when I was 12 versus when I was 16 versus when I was 20 versus when I was 25 versus when I was 30 versus now. And no, I'm wow. not going to tell you how old I am. And well, it's funny because <laughs> I'm like... You hung on to that concept longer than I did. <laughs> I think I oh. let go uh, mid twenties. No, you didn't. Late? No, 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 you didn't. Because when I say the words "true love," an idea still comes into your head. What you mean is holding on to the idea that it's a real thing. Mm, mm -hmm. But in books, it is a real thing. In movies, it is a real thing. In in The Princess Bride, it is the thing. Thank you very much. I've got to so, say, though, how interesting would it be to write what happened after HEA? And a lot of there are some after. there are some very interesting books that have been written on exactly that thing. I love it. <laughs> um. So of course, when I when I was doing the research for this topic. I had to look into the origin of the phrase true love because, I mean, <laughs> love and romance as, as a topic for stories, legends, and myths, I think is as old as the human race and our ability to tell legends, stories, and myths. But the concept of true love, that phrase, where the heck did that come from? And this is what I found out. 
And if you know differently, listeners, I want to know. Um, what I found out uh, is that the phrase true love dates back to 14th century Middle English. And as a phrase, when you said true love versus just love, it was to differentiate it because love had different meanings then as it does now. Let's think think about it. We bandy off the term love for everything from our favorite brand of facial tissue to what we feel for our best friends to how we feel about our pets to how we feel about chocolate to how we feel about our romantic partners to, you know, the list goes on and on. It's a word with a lot of different meanings for us, but usually we know what other people are talking about from the context. Now, 14th century uh, uh, Great Britain, which was not called Great Britain at the time, uh, they had, <laughs> in that part of Europe, I should say, because this is also true of France, etc. They, when they said love, or the French equivalent, that could mean love as an act, sex, in other words, uh, as a duty, fidelity in marriage. So sometimes when they were talking about, you know, oh, my love for my husband, they don't mean necessarily sex. They mean my duty to my husband or to my wife, what have you. It could also be love as a feeling or a passion, uh, such as romantic love. Uh, that's also where we get the concept of courtly love, which in its purest form was a feeling and not an act ever. Once you broke into the getting it on, it was no longer considered courtly love. It was considered a major taboo. True love was that perfect combination of all of the above. If you had somebody that you had feelings and passion for and you could get it on with and you were lucky enough to be in a faithful marriage, that's true love. And I, I think that's interesting because at the time, and we discussed this in our last episode, marriages had a lot to do with uh, business. It was so, all business. Yeah. It was all business. In the 14th century, the only reason you married somebody else was for uh, financial and procreational purposes. So um, to actually have the benefit of experiencing passion and love for your partner rare was indeed. rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were mentioning Disney because you know, Disney's fairy tales is all about true love. That's the reason, that's the inspiration for what people are doing. But if you go back and you read Grimm's fairy tales, if you read the old versions of these fairy tales, <laughs> they have nothing not to do with it. You know, they really aren't. You could, you can see how they could be spun that direction. But usually that's not the case. Usually you've got, you know, the, the worthy third son marrying the princess as a reward, not because they fell in love, but because that was the king's way of rewarding that woodcutter or what have you. Or if you do have somebody quote unquote falling in love, it's usually because they look on them and they're so dang hot that they're like, Ooh, I want me a piece of that action. Except they would say it in middle English. So but the majority of fairy tales have nothing to do with romance or relationships. They're lessons. Yeah. Yeah. They have to do with fairies. Yes. (laughs) Yes. With curses and... Not interspecies marriage. No. (laughs) Exactly. So this idea of true love as an inspiration for the acts in these fairy tales, that comes along later. I think that that comes somewhat from our Victorianized version of things because when Europe got to the Victorian era, it got way more prudish. Yeah. Um, I mean, it started going there in the Edwardian times, but Vic- Queen Victoria was the one who really drove it home, folks. And because England was such a powerhouse at the time, a lot of other European courts followed suit. Not to the same extent, <coughs> France, but um, yeah, more definitely more prudish. And our, our fairy tales followed suit. So instead of being all about getting it on or getting the moolah, it became about true love because... As long as you're going to get the prince or the princess, why not get true love to go along with it? Which is kind of a sweet, if possibly naive thought, depending on how romantic you are. Um, and then we, we continue to see this with other forms of literature. You, rem- you may remember this, uh, Kamala. We talked about this briefly 
way back in the day, one of our first episodes when we were talking about Greek mythology with Michael Munns. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how a lot of Americans, when they do know something about Greek mythology, it's all because they read um, the book Mythology by Edith uh, Hamilton, I think her last name was. And it's a a nice, slim, uh, well-written volume that summarizes the major Greek myths and tells you a little bit about the Greek and the Roman pantheons. However, it takes out all the rape. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ancient Greece yeah. and ancient Rome was pretty rapey. Let's just let's just spell it out there. You know, Zeus didn't turn into a bull so that he could seduce and woo uh, Europa. He turned into a bull so that he could kidnap her ass and rape her. That's how this stuff went down. Yeah, but by like- the time Edith Hamilton is writing her book, it's all about falling in love. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because we also mentioned in that episode with Michael G. Muntz um, that the representations shown in Hercules and... (gasps) Hercules! Disney's Hercules gender swap! Oh my god, my brain just exploded with joy. Okay, sorry, sorry. I'll talk about that later. I'm not editing this out, by the way. That was fabulous. So uh, I think, is it Showtime or HBO? Rome? There's a lot of slaves and rape and sex and oh, HBO. Oh my god, I loved that show. It yeah. was wow. They did yeah. not work so they never did with HBO. I don't I don't think that's exaggerated. And they um, water it down. <laughs> so yeah, watch that and then read Edith um what's her Hamilton's. face thing on mythology because Edith Hamilton. <laughs> then it's just funny. Yeah, it really is. I am 99% sure her name is Edith Hamilton. I'd look it up, but I'm too lazy. Anyway, so, so I think that has a lot to do with where how with the popularization of the concept of true love um, as a major motivator for characters in fairy tales, in other stories. I mean, there's there's been romances for a really long time. I think... Okay, before I, before I get too far ahead of myself. Well, also, before... When you're ta- Yes. Before? You have been vindicated. You what? are correct. It is Edith Hamilton. You're absolutely correct. Continue. Good job, brain. Ow. I just pat myself on the head forgetting I was wearing headphones. Anyway. Um, also, when I hear the phrase true love, another earworm I get is from good old Shakespeare. Back in the day, I did a little bit of theater. You'd never guess it from my very monotone voice. Uh, I know this. But um, <laughs> I know one of the one of the plays I was in was uh, *Midsummer Night's Dream*, Shakespeare's most popular comedy of all time. If you haven't seen it, what is your problem? Go watch it. It's hilarious. Don't read it. Reading Shakespeare is boring. Watch it. Watch a good performance of it. It's hilarious. Anyway, there's a line in there where Lysander, who is running away with his lady love, um, his true love, uh is bemoaning the fact that they're running into all of these challenges and he is comforting himself and his lady love by comparing them to the heroes of old. And he has this great line for aught that I could ever read could ever hear by Taylor history. The course of true love never did run smooth. True story. It totally is because most of the great love stories, especially back in the day, we're all tragedies. I mean, oh my gosh. I'll get a little bit more into that later. They really uh, haven't run into the concept of HEA yet. It was more no, like... No, They really... Uh, DEA, dead ever after. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. And it occurs to me, and I'm probably the last person to think of this, that that probably had to go along with stories as being lessons. Because if you followed your passions, you'll wind up dead as opposed to being a good, dutiful person and uh, marrying for all those financial and procreational right. reasons. You'll ruin be, your family. You'll, okay. you'll lose your finances. You'll yeah. throw away the land. Yeah. Shame on you. Die. <laughs> <laughs> you can get it on, but then you can get dead. Um, another. Speaking of dead, uh, another... Shakespeare line that I like uh, involving true love comes from Richard the Third, 
not a comedy, a uh, history, a drama. And I'm sorry, but a good performance of Richard III puts Homeland to shame. Same kinds of concepts. We're talking about international intrigue. We're talking about cold-blooded murder. We're talking about backstabbing. We're talking, I mean, wow, Richard III, man. What a story. Um, how historically accurate it is, I don't really know. A lot of people feel that uh, poor Richard III was deeply villainized. But anyway, in the, uh, I think it's Act 4 or is it Scene 4? Whatever, don't quote me on that. In this particular scene, Richard III is trying to convince Queen Elizabeth, not the Queen Elizabeth, a different Queen Elizabeth, he's trying to convince her to let him marry one of her daughters. And the reason this is funny is because she, he's just killed a bunch of her sons. <laughs> so he's like, hey, I just killed a bunch of your kids. Um, that means I'm going to assume the throne now. I know you don't like me, but let me make it up to you by getting it on with your newly widowed daughter. And <laughs> that's hardly a, that's a hard sell right there. You know, but he sells it. He's a silver-tongued devil. Oh, my gosh. Partially because she doesn't want to get thrown out in the streets. Partially because he persuades her. Partially because she thinks it's in the best interest of her daughter. Elizabeth says, okay, sure, I'll go convince my daughter to marry you. And Richard says, bear her my true love's kiss, and so farewell. Meaning... I am going to court this chick. Check it out, man. She is going to be my sex toy. She is going to be my honor and duty sworn Fidelia spouse. And not only that, I totally feel feelings and passion for this chick. And it's like none of the above. Um, he's all just like, whatever, power. <laughs> so it's funny because Shakespeare always, always struck me as a bit of a cynic. A, a bit. A lot a of a cynic. Yes. Yes. <laughs> A, a very well-written cynic. Oh, yes. <laughs> but that's what makes it so clever. Yeah. Shakespeare, man. I should go watch more Shakespeare. Shakespeare is good stuff. Anyway, so so those are your, your, your origins of the phrase true love. Oh, man, I, I can't help it. Like, Princess Bride keeps popping into my head. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. I know, I know. Like, stay on target. Stay on target. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Death Star is in sight. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that what we're calling it these days? Um, so, as I was mentioning, the fact that true love as a phrase, the reason they added, and then you will even see it in some places written as one word, true love. Kind of like true blood, only not, and less of a beverage. The reason so why- distracted right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I think I think the sugar from my lunch is kicking in. Uh, so the phrase true love was to differentiate this kind of love from these different kinds of love. And in a similar way, um, I was looking over love gods and goddesses. I was like, you know, there's a lot of those. I'm going to look some up. Turns out there's way more than I thought. Partially because there's way more gods and goddesses out there than you think there are. There's like tons. I mean, you know your history. Wow. Your brain really starts to get blown. Um, but then not only that, just as there's lots of different kinds of love, there's lots of different deities over these different kinds of love. I could have come up with a huge friggin' list, but I didn't. I'll just, I'll just go over a very short list that barely, barely touches the tip of the iceberg. So we get deities who are in charge of love and beauty. Because let's face it, a lot of times in a lot of stories, it's love at first sight. Now, I would argue, of course, that's not really love at first sight. It's lust at first sight, but they call it love at first sight for a reason. Hey, you got to start somewhere. You really, really do. Uh, a contemporary novel that I feel captures this very well is actually Catch-22. Have you read that book? Yes. Do you remember it? Not really well. I That's read a lot bad. of books, and everything gets clamored together. I am sorry. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. The first time I read that book, I was kind of young. I was in my early teens, and I kind of missed this. It was later as an adult when I went back and reread it that it finally clicked. But the main character, Yosarian, every time he sees a hot chick, he falls in love. And that phrase is used again and again. And it's hilarious because 
this is not a book that shies away from love, sex, and prostitution. But he doesn't say Yosarian looked at her and, you know, wanted wanted that hot bod or whatever. It says Yosarian fell in love every single time he sees a hot chick. And that's a very deliberate choice on the part of the author. It's, it's Oh, my gosh. And we've all known people like that. Anyway, yes. moving on. It's so true. So, of course, you have Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. Um, and then you've got Hathor, uh, an Egyptian goddess from similar time frame, love and beauty. So you have deities who are in charge of those two things together. Then, not surprising, you've got multiple deities in charge of love and procreation slash fertility. Which is interesting because you will find also tons of deities who are just in charge of procreation and fertility without the love. So the fact that you can have fertility gods and then you can have love and fertility gods, that really tells you something about the human race and our concepts of love. Well, and Um, like we were saying, a lot of times these things didn't have a lot to do with one another. They really didn't. But it's why friendships were so... So emphasize at that time because you had to have that relationship with someone, right? Meaning, meaning a meaningful, intimate—not physically intimate, but yeah. um, conversational and and feeling intimate with somebody somewhere. Yeah, anyway, which which goes back to that medieval concept of courtly love, because yes. most of the time you did not have those kinds of feelings for your spouse because your spouse was all about money and kids. Uh, you could have a romantic, emotional relationship with somebody else but you could never, ever consummate it. Because once you did, bad, burn at the stake. Um, so a couple of uh, love and procreation deities you've probably never heard of would be, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing these, <laughs> Astgeek, that's an Armenian god, and Kurupi, that's a, that's a, I'm going to mispronounce this, a Guarani <laughs> deity. Don't ask then, here's a fun thing, there are some deities of homosexual love. And I, granted, I did not do a lot of in-depth research on this. My research was, because there was so much information, I just didn't have to. But just the brief research I did, I found a handful of male homosexual deities that were only in charge of male homosexual love. I did not see any uh, lesbian goddesses. As in, like, goddesses or gods who ruled over lesbian love. I'm not 100% sure what that means, except that the patriarchy goes so much deeper than we thought. Well, yeah, I'm wondering if it was just different levels of exception, because ancient Greek culture was pretty accepting of uh, man and boy love. <laughs> but I've never heard, huh. Okay. Yeah. In fact, Mind the Greeks had their own deity in that one, Ganymede. But there was also a Chinese one, Tu Ershen. Um, then you had gods of love and marriage. Yeah. Uh, such as Frigg from Norse mythology. Which, which makes me think of the Almighty Johnson's, a New Zealand TV episode that I was turned on to by Michael Muntz. And that really plays in there. So if, if you're looking for an interesting, uh, Norse comedy slash television show, I recommend at least the first two seasons. Okay. I'll add that one to my list. Uh, you also have a number of deities who are in charge of love and the arts. Um, which is interesting because when you think about it, love inspires more than just stories. It inspires painting and music and sculpture. And, you know, love is a great inspiration. There's a reason why it comes up so much. So the fact that they would have deities that oversaw love and the arts is really kind of a beautiful thing. Well, it's funny because... Strong feelings, at least in my experience as an artist, are very influential. Love is a very strong feeling. Other mm-hmm. strong feelings also influence art and writing yeah. and all of those things. So that's interesting. Huh. Absolutely. And and you do have deities who are just in charge of the arts, mm-hmm. but then you have some that are about love and the arts. Uh, the, one of my favorites on that one is Bastet from Egypt, who later, depending on when you're looking in Egyptian history, became Bast, uh, goddess of kitty cats. Because, you know, love, art, and cats. Perfect trio. Anyway. (laughs) Then, also going into other interesting combinations, you have deities in charge of love and war. Which is so appropriate. Um, Astarte from uh, Canaanite. Ishtar from Mesopotamian mythology. There's just a couple. You've probably heard of them. 
Both goddesses, by the way. Goddesses of love and war. Hmm. And then, of course, we have gods of love and lust. Because if you have one without the other, I raise my eyebrow at you. At least in terms of romantic love. Anyway, uh, Rati, a Hindu god of love and lust. But then my favorite were the, when I was doing my research were the Aztecs. Because here I just gave you this huge list of all these deities, of these subtypes of love. Yeah, the Aztecs took that a step further. They have subtypes <laughs> of gods and goddesses. No, I guess they're all goddesses. Of goddesses of love and lust. Because there's more than one kind of lust. I am going to slaughter these names. I was I just going to say, I would be so impressed if you wade through this. Because Aztec god and goddess names are so difficult to pronounce. Yeah, I'm going to slaughter these. I am majorly going to slaughter these. Our listeners out there, you know what? You guys should all just get a jar and keep it on your table. And every time you hear me mispronounce something, put a dollar in that jar. And then at the end of the year, give it all to charity. In my name. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, so first of all, we have uh, the Aztec goddess. Ooh, Exquien- ah, la, la. See, there we go. Exquiename. She was the goddess of carnality. And then there were four little sub-deities under her. Uh, Tia Kapan, the goddess of sexual passion. Teiku, the goddess of sexual appetite. Tlaco, the goddess of sexual longing. Which is different from Zokotzen, uh, goddess of sexual desire. So there you have it. Sexual passion, sexual appetite, sexual longing, and sexual desire. So distinct, they each get their own goddess. How's that for a pantheon? It's a really interesting culture. Yes, they really, really were. A lot of their gods were really bloodthirsty, which feels to me with the whole vampire thing. Anyway. And, and yet they invented chocolate. Well, it's not so- as we know it. It was sugarless chocolate, which is still good in its own use, but huh, you got to love Dutching chocolate, though. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, the Dutch, the Dutch knew their chocolate. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I got. Um, did I leave out any of your favorites? No. Okay, just just making sure. So, <laughs> um, Those aren't my favorites. <laughs> I am the darkness. Anyway. <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, you bring up an interesting point, which is that, you know, when we talk about when we talk about true love, when we think about the Princess Bride, we think about Disney, we think of, you know, roses and sunshine and H E A, right? That's that when we think true love, I think for a lot of us in contemporary culture, the phrase true love is synonymous with happily ever after. Because if it doesn't end happily ever after, then obviously it wasn't true love. Well, and I, I also would take that a step further and add that it it's a um, inference that there is one person out there for you. Just yes. one person. Yep. And that's the that's true one. The I have with it. <laughs> anyway. Well, I think that's the issue a lot of people have with it. Um I'm going to tell you what, let me, let me cover a couple more of my research points because I'll be sad if I don't get to go over all of them. And then let's talk about this a little bit as writers, because I bet you and I both have some very interesting thoughts about the concepts of love and true love and how we work that into our writing. Mm-hmm. If we work it into our writing. Mm-hmm. So these days we think of love conquers all. There's another Disney movie, Robin Hood. Okay. Anyway. Uh, that's the year where yes. I get with love conquers all is the, well, the and I think gender swap. Yeah. Right. Ah, anyway. So these days we like the phrase love conquers all, but that definitely is more contemporary throughout most of history. As we were saying earlier, love is tragedy. Um, and Shakespeare is a great example of this. I mean, we've got some like Midsummer Night's Dream if you look at Midsummer Night's Dream as a cynical commentary on concepts of true love, it takes on an even more amusing twist. See, I um, love him, and, and that's why. That yes. is why. But you also don't have to think of him as cynical to enjoy his comedies. They're also really good. It's true. But then he also wrote some very, very dark tragedies, including probably the most famous uh, romantic tragedy in all of Western culture, Romeo and Juliet, which is not a story that Shakespeare invented. That is such an old classic tale. You saw it with Tristan and his sold. You saw it with, um, oh, 
poopy. I'm forgetting their names, but there is there's a Greek myth that's essentially identical. Star-crossed um, lovers. It is a yes, theme this, that goes over and over throughout yes. all of history. Yes. Um, and in fact, when I was researching non-Western famous love stories, because I thought, you know, of course, when I think of love stories, I think of Greek mythology, I think of Shakespeare, I think of all of these Western stories. I'm like, I, I got to get out of this Western rut. I got to get out and explore Oh man, I would say at least 80%. At least 80% of all of the love stories I found were tragedies. They were all versions of Romeo and Juliet. I I, I looked up at least eight different love stories from Pakistan. All of them were basically Romeo and Juliet. Every single one of them. Um one of the most beautiful ones. Now, this one I'd actually knew before because, you know, me in Japan, The Willow Wife. It's a wonderful folk tale from Japan. It's a tragedy. Um, and then you've got The Butterfly Lovers from China. Tragedy. And you got Ohia and Lehua from Hawaii. I had to throw a Hawaiian one in there. Tragedy. Um, I mean, you could... Sometimes they put twists on these ones, like with The Butterfly Lovers and uh, Ohia and Lehua. It's one of those things where they die, but then they get transformed, so they're back together. Um, there's a there's a version of this in Greek mythology also where you have this old couple who uh, greet Zeus and Hermes in their home as guests, thinking they're just poor beggars, and then Zeus offers them uh, a reward, and they're like, well, we want to serve in your temple, and we never want to be parted. And so then when they die, they turn into two trees next to each other. It's that kind of a thing. You get a lot of couples who die but are still somehow bound together as plants or animals or rocks or like bodies of water. You see this a lot. Yeah. Mountains. So, yes, mountains. So it's a way of the tragedies that they died, but their love endured even in lifelessness in one way or another. So those were all of the the various twists on those things I saw. Um, So now, Kamala, as a writer, what do you think, true love? Whether, let let me postulate, whether or not you personally believe in the concept of true love as a real thing in the real world doesn't necessarily mean that you might not put it in a book because let's face it, you put all kinds of things in your books that aren't real in the real world. So no, the concept of true love. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, so I think my beliefs as a person tie into what I reflect in my writing. Mm -hmm. So I may have a happily ever after ending, but that's just because that's where the book ends. So Mm The issue I have with true love is the concept that there is one person out there for you. Now, when I say that, it probably brings to mind something completely opposite than what I mean to the people who are listening. So I am really happily married. Um, I believe in love, but I also believe that putting placing the belief on the fact that there's the quote unquote fact that there's one person out there for you makes it easy to say, if this isn't working out, it's because I'm with the wrong person. Mm-hmm. I feel that that point of view can be tremendously misleading. And I think that it's a disservice um, to younger girls who are saturated in those stories yeah. to think that one day the Prince Charming is going to ride along, sweep them off their feet, and then everything is going to be perfect. So that's the issue I have with it. So in my writing, I try to reflect that every relationship, no matter how attractive the people are or how well off they are or how well suited they are to one another, there's always going to be conflict that needs to be resolved in some way if you're going to persist in a relationship. And that is why I'm not a huge fan of true love and why Mm -hmm. I, I choose not to portray it as that in my writing. And I think that's the most eloquently I've ever been able to state that. Go me. Back. <laughs> and you even have it recorded for posterity. Woot. I know. I, I'm going to refer back to this. Yeah, the minute 51. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
<laughs> so yeah, so I would I would agree with that. Um, I think the idea of true love. I mean, it's it's a romantic thought. It's a very mm -hmm. romantic thought. The idea that you're gonna find this other person and click and boom, it's gonna be beautiful. It'll be just like peanut butter and chocolate, baby. You know, meant to be. And I think I'm gonna theorize that there may be that it, maybe that that idea grew out of some grains of truth because I do think that when you are with someone that it can work with, it will be much easier than trying to force something with someone that it really can't work with. And Absolutely. I speak from experience with this one because I dated a lot of frogs before I found my prince, so to speak. Actually, that was part of my mother's speech at my wedding and how many toads I kissed before I found my husband. So Yeah, I was there. Yeah, <laughs> it was horrifying and hilarious and horrifying for me but hilarious for everybody else. Uh, so obviously I would agree with you on that point that people are, there are some people who are just naturally better suited yeah. to be together. And some relationships are just so naturally toxic and difficult. It yeah. shouldn't be difficult from the onset. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um, unless it's an arranged marriage, in which case, honey, I, I can't, I can't help you. So as a psychotherapist, when I was uh, getting my master's degree, uh, even though I knew at that point in time that I was never going to be a couples therapist, I nevertheless took classes on marriage, couples, and family therapy. And one of my professors put it so perfectly when he said that when you marry a person, you marry a set of problems. And there are no exceptions to that rule. Anytime you marry a person, you marry a set of problems. So you don't find your true love and there won't be any problems. That doesn't happen. What happens is you marry a set of problems that you can deal with. You marry a set of problems that you're willing to work through, that you're willing to uh, endure, and that you're willing to put up with. Because that's just the way life works. And I think it's funny we accept that much more in our other relationships. When we, when we think of other forms of love, familial love, platonic love, it's like, Cammy, you're one of my oldest friends. I love you. I'm not going to pretend our friendship has never had problems. Oh my God. It's just like, there's just, there's things you neither, either need to accept as they are right? or work through with anybody, you know, like a anybody. lot of things with my family, there's just a lot of things I accept. There's other exactly. things I call them on. And that's just how it is with friendships too. We've known each other long enough or that is just the case. And the thing is, is it gets to a point where that's not a detriment. That's part of the fun. Yeah. <laughs> like I probably would find a friendship with a perfect person really friggin' boring. Um, and they definitely wouldn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> they feel the same like, way What's about your me. Problem. <laughs> so yeah, they tell me you're weird, and they'd be yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Except they wouldn't no, say I'd that. Be like, yeah, I am, and you can you can go jump, Mister. <laughs> so so anyway, so for me as a writer, I don't know. I get torn sometimes because. Well, first of all, I write fiction. Like you, I write fantastical stuff. I mean, sometimes I write really fantastical stuff. I write ghosts, and I write dragons, and I write, you know, all of the above. So it's like, well, as long as I'm throwing in that kind of fictional shit, why not throw in true love while I'm at it? So, but on the other hand, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like going with a true love thing is can be boring because it's been overdone. I don't want my relationships to be flat. And I don't want the only thing that gives the relationship spice to be the challenges that come between them that are usually born of simple miscommunication because people just don't talk enough, like all romance novels ever. Which isn't to say I haven't enjoyed the occasional romance novel, but it's no, my beef I, I the genre as a whole. Yeah, no, I, I so, enjoy it time to time. I, I Sometimes I sound like, I like, like I'm putting it down. Time to time. Um, yeah, so I guess that's my point. It's like there's a time and a place for everything, but I don't think that's the kind of thing I write. I want my relationships to have way more spice than that. Um, and I want the drama to come from other problems 
I also, and I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Here's the thing. When you're, when you're writing, when people write about romance, they tend to write about the beginning of relationships because mm-hmm. that's where the drama happens. Mm-hmm. You n- almost never see romances about couples that have been together for a number of years. Well, unless, no, I have. Um, usually it has to do with them growing apart and then finding each other again, which I think I, I enjoy. Yeah, I think you find those. Um, not frequently. But not frequent, not nearly as frequently as you find stuff with the, the stuff at the beginning. And I think, I don't think that's the place where most people's minds go. Um, so I think when you find couples where they've been together for a while, it's either that they've grown apart and then they grow back together, mm-hmm. or it's that one of them goes into danger and needs to be rescued. Mm-hmm. And those are, tend to be the two. I there's a part of me that really wants to write that romance with a couple that's been together for a long time and have it not and have have the tension come from somewhere else. I really want to write that. I have no idea what that would look like, and I don't know if I'd be any good at it. I will look the, the closest I've ever seen, and probably my favorite love story that I think reflects what love actually looks like would have to be the movie Date Night. You remember that one? Is that is Steve that Carell and yes, yes, Bruce Willis? No, is Bruce, is no. I'm thinking of a different one. Yes, Blind, I'm thinking Blind Date. Yeah, no, I can't think of her name. I'm totally blanking on I'm her looking, name. She's such a I'm brilliant, brilliant comedian. I'm She's such up. a good actress. I can see her face. I can see her eyes and her interesting nose. Tina Fey. And yes, yes. I haven't, I haven't actually seen it. Oh, you need to see it. It is. It is my favorite. What I can, what I would call, I would call that as my favorite true love story because I think that's what real love really actually looks like. So mm-hmm. since you haven't seen it, I can't say anything about the plot because I don't want to spoil it for you. But um, I like it because I'll just say that part of the reason I like it is because it is a couple that have been together for a long time, and because the challenge that they face, they face together as a couple, and even in the midst of all the stuff they're going on. They are still dealing with those stupid little things that drive us nuts about our partners, but we put up with because they're our partners. And let's face it, you cannot harp on every little thing because you just freaking can't. Well, sometimes it's fun, but my, Some- my husband would not agree with me on that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that one's my favorite. Yeah. How about you? You got one? You, you, what's, what's your favorite love story that you think, and it could be a book, a movie, a, fav- a famous tale, which is your favorite that you believe is an accurate portrayal? Uh, the one that's popping into my head. So it's not historically current, but I really like Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, it's a good one. So the reason why is because because of the reason you, you don't like some of the early um, – relationship stories it's because they misunderstood each other so much and i just feel that that is i love how she started out just completely disliking him mm-hmm. because of her prejudices and I, I love how they work through that so i gotta go with that one you know but i would not i i feel like i have to clarify what i said earlier i that's not the kind of miscommunication i'm talking about because mm-hmm. i don't see any way that they could have because in that culture you don't see two people sit down and say, all right, you know what? My sister, your best friend, they've got this thing going on. So we're going to be seeing each other a lot. So let's talk this through yeah. so that we can find a way to be in social settings without wanting to kill each other, which is something that people might do today. It would take gonads, but they might. Um, it I'm usually works about, better if you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about those really obvious things in in some romances where one character says that and the other character completely misinterprets it for through their own, you know, insecurities. And all they have to do is just ask, did you mean this when you said that? But they don't. Or they saw them having a conversation with their cousin and think, oh my goodness, because of the look on his face when he was having that conversation with my cousin, he must love her and not me. No! That's the kind of thing that makes me want to slap people. I'm like, you know what, folks? It's called talking. I do it a lot. Give it a try. 
I can't was thinking she does too much. No. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I agree. I love Pride and Prejudice. And part of the reason why I love that one is because of how much the characters grow. Yeah. I mean, both Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, they grow and it's so clear that they are going to continue to challenge one another to become better people and support one another in becoming better people. And that's a, that's a great place to start a relationship. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. It's a great one. Um, yeah. I think it's just, yeah. Anybody who's been in a longstanding relationship in a marriage that has lasted more than a few years, you know, this, you know, that the, the butterflies and the romance and the roses and the starshine, they, they fade and a lot of people bemoan that as being the loss of true love, but I disagree. I think that provides an opportunity for us to develop something more meaningful and something deeper that lasts longer, but it takes work. Agreed. That's hard to capture in a movie or a book, though. Mm-hmm. So no wonder we don't see it too often. Yep. But love, true love. Will follow you forever. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I totally have to go watch Princess Bride now. Anyway, um, so that brings us to our, our next weekly geeky query, which is I want to know what you out there in audience land think is the worst fictional portrayal of love. So, I've all, got mine. oh, really? Yeah. I know I've got mine too. So of all of the characters, of all of the movies, and I'll take, I'll even take single lines because my answer is actually a single line that has, I've always hated with a vehement passion. So what do you think is the worst portrayal of love? I want to know. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So once you, uh, once you know what that is. By all means, share it with us. Share it on our Facebook pages. Share it on our blogs. Camilla uh, Thompson can be found at CamillaThompson.com and on Pinterest at Camilla Thompson and on Facebook and on Twitter. Shadows of the Sound is also on Facebook. And you can find me, ZD Gladstone, on my blog, ZDGladstone.blogspot.com or on Google+, which I sometimes look at. Um, that's that's where we want to know your, your, your worst portrayal of love. Uh, we also have a review coming up next month. We have been sticking for a while now with the book of the month, but because we're going to be hitting the beach and we're going to be incommunicado for a while, we are not going to do a book this time. Uh, Instead for the month of March, we're going to do an anime review. So if you've been wondering, should I get into anime? The answer is yes. And we recommend that you start with this show called Bacano. Uh, it's one I've seen before and I really love. I'm forcing Kamala to watch it so you can suffer along with her. Did I say suffer? I meant thrill. You can thrill to the genius along with Kamala. So thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we do want to hear from you. Feedback, questions, and ideas for shows. In the meantime, take care and keep an eye on the shadows. You never know what's lurking 